Welcome to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Tonight, do cities have expiration dates? A conversation with architects Xinyan Ma and Tom Main. Given the fact that inhabitable spaces on the Earth's surface are limited, there is a growing discussion about how cities should be built or transformed to accommodate the needs of future generations. In a lively give and take, Ma, Dean of the University of Southern California's School of Architecture, and Maine, the winner of the 2005 Pritzker Prize and founder of the Santa Monica-based Morphosis, take on the conventional wisdom of what passes for urban living in Los Angeles. As Maine says, people believe that Angelinos are comfortable living in a fake old new world rather than exploring what it means to be alive in the 21st century. Ma and Maine also debate public versus private space, the difference between a city's life cycle and lifespan, and the idea that L.A. is a laboratory where we live by default more than by design. Recorded before a live audience at the Museum of Contemporary Art as part of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, we begin with architect Xinyan Ma. Well, I guess Tom is the guest uh, here, initiated by uh, School of Architecture, and also as a personal friend, I'm uh, deeply appreciative that he's joining us. I also wanted to kind of, again, you know, express my gratitude to all of you, and thinking how difficult it actually gets around at this time of the, of the day. It's really, hour and a half on the Yeah, I took about uh, <laughs> uh, more than one hour to actually get here, and uh, another half an hour driving around and talking about urbanism. Or cities. Yes, really started. Yeah. Can you get in the, you notice you can't even get into the garage in this place? You have to through a service entrance? No, totally, totally. That's another discussion for the yeah. <laughs> Well, but the, the kind of a three-dimensional difficulty around here and actually uh, encourage you to really think into how city actually organizes itself through logics or rationales. But again, tonight's topic is really free, but we kind of throw a topic there talking about the notion of expiration of cities. And uh, again, city is not a fashionable topic, particularly in LA, for its economical, political, and, and social difficulties to kind of do anything on the city. But, however, architectural practices today would only become posturless without the thinking of cities. And exemplary work has been kind of exhibited both through Tom's uh, late work and kind of continue pursuing of that answer. And uh, I would just give two more sentences before I would uh, want Tom to respond. The notion of expiration actually comes out of the thinking of two paradoxical situations in the city, in urbanism. One is if, if city is a planned entity, and planning then became representation of the best technology and state-of-art instrument that determine a state of the city, if that's the case, then how you ensure the intelligence and technology at the time the city was planned would, would, would keep effective in the years to come, so, or 100 years, 200 years. So how, that's in the kind of mechanical thinking. The other paradox is the city is constantly being seen as organic entity that grow out of time. But if it's an organic entity with a life a notion in it, then every, everything that with a night life as a notion in it has, a, has kind of this cycle of being infant, grown, mature, and eventually somehow transforms. So then this 
too paradoxical situation in urban thinking. It seems never had given enough thoughts. And what then happens if expiration is inevitable? Have our intelligence really invested in thinking in those、uh, in those terms? With that being said, I、um, I'm going to invite Tom. Was that a question? Well, <laughs> that's actually no, not a question. It's really the kind of、uh, the is a lack of investment in those thinking、Absolutely. that really initiated、Absolutely. this conversation. You know, it's funny. This is, I think, the most complicated topic. I was trained in quotes more in planning and urban design when I came out of USC in the late '60s and started working for Victor Gruen when the old man was still there, and it was an extremely interesting place. And it was.、Um, Unbeknownst to me, it was at a time when、um, the whole notion of planning urban design was、um, ending as a as a discipline, really, and it was、um, coming to an end in terms of、uh, its political kind of power. And it was the beginning of、um, what an era of, of of the private sector, which now dominates our city. I just came from Dallas. I was there yesterday. We're starting a commission there. And it's it's fascinating. Was if you look at、um, the parallel of of Los Angeles as the 20th century city, the infrastructure city, the city of the the private sector, which completely reinterprets the、um, what most people thinks think of as of the city in terms of a public nature, which would be a European place in, in Western terms anyway. And I was startled. I, I haven't spent a lot of time in Dallas. That it's so much even more extended than Los Angeles in the sense of the private, and that there is no public, there is no、um, kind of connective fabric. It's only private. And the the public, or what we call public, or that connected tissue, socially, culturally, etc., somehow takes place within the domain of a series of private kind of ventures. But it gets to the kind of the larger problem. This is a whole topic that's、um, there's not a lot of people that are interested in talking about it, or that have very much to say about it, or we don't know much about it. For those of you, I don't know how many architects. If I got half, or what kind of audience have I got in front of us here? Because it depends how we go at it. Because I'm going to say, if you, if you、um, the last time there was like a really a set of coherent ideas and interest in this was、uh, CIAM and Team Ten, and it was a, it was a group of architects that formed in the the 20s, and it went through、um, a, a shift into Team Ten that took us through the 60s, and it was just ending as I became involved in my education in the, in the middle 60s, and there was a、um, a group of architects that were making extremely coherent positions. In a broad sense of the nature of what cities are, it was probably the the main preoccupation of architecture, architecture, urban design, and planning, was was the was the singular kind of an idea, and this group of people, and they were filled with famous names. It was the Corbusiers and the Charuns and and the, the Shadrick Woods. It goes on and on. Were、um, making proposals of the new city, and they were they were challenging the 19th century, and they were entering within modern terms of infrastructure, the automobile industry. Post-Marxian thinking in terms of,、um, of materialism, etc., etc., and in the '60s it kind of evaporated. And I actually worked with the Pasadena Redevelopment Agency when I came as my first job out of college, and it was the end of that era.、Uh, it was the Lindsay era in New York, and、uh, there was still a notion that architects were、uh, involved in some therapeutic project. Your job was to somehow、um, you took some responsibility for the society you lived in. And today, it's really funny. I, if I mention even the word therapeutic in front of my students, they look at me like I'm an old old man. Like, oh my God, this guy's like way it, it dates me into the '60s and into this ridiculously kind of optimistic position because we've re, we've we've now, of course, at an extremely different place in the bell curve. 
where we've, we've moved from maybe the kind of the end of what Roosevelt started politically or kind of an era in this country to the kind of opposite that started with Reagan, where now there's um, no uh, desire for the public. I know when I'm talking to people about Los Angeles, a lot of times, especially when I'm out of the country, that people are always, they, they focus on my, my location here in Los Angeles, and they discuss the notion of public space. I always have to remind them it's not an issue with public space. It has to do with the root cause of the desire for public space. Make sense? Very, very different kind of idea. You, you, all of the work, an architect basically concretizes things. You make them permanent somehow, and it starts with desire. It starts with a need. It starts with an articulation, right, of that need. And uh, what's been so fascinating, it took me a long time to grasp it, even living here, is that um, this is a city that has a very different kind of notion of the need for public, which is changing a bit now. It's definitely in transition. It's starting to move towards, let's say, more traditional or ideas of cities that we understand right, within a, in a broader range. I know I live in New York and Tom, in Los Angeles, I, I, in, and the two are opposite. Before we get into this LA-ness, probably two questions came up uh, description. One, what was the reason that Team 10 take on such an impossible social initiative and given such a unrealistic thought on the city? Were they frustrated about the notion of objects you know, or political system at that time completely gave no hope to kind of to even see that's one. And the other is that when you use the therapeutic urbanism or therapeutic work in urban, is that, is that kind of a sense of impossibility of the, but it seems the, it, the real kind of critical uh, take on urban agenda or even urban initi- initiatives? I know public space is really important. It's been kind of the, the, the most fashionable world in discussion here and present urbanism, but public space could be any space, so using public space as an um, acupuncture point of the urbanism seems to be a little bit too weak or too reactive, given the, back, the context but, of... But in of, that era of CIM, Team 10, there was a willingness and an exuberance and a, maybe a naivete to work on impossible problems, like the people I admire most among my friends in architecture, my colleagues, are people that are actually engaged in impossible problems. They're not already clogged up with reality. They're willing to work on absolutely incredibly difficult, complex problems that have maybe no potential for resolution in a simple sense. And I think that the whole context of how we think today as architects has changed so radically that there's a kind of pragmatism that immediately stifles any possibility of having a vision or changing things. By the way, I think it's exactly what's happening with uh, the presidential race right now. There's a person that's speaking, uh, maybe naively, maybe he's, in a, some, he's a younger character, and people understand immediately that they actually want someone that actually is free enough to actually believe, to have hope that there's something better, that we can solve something. Because I think for myself, I, this whole thing we're talking about among our discipline, whether it's architecture, urban design, planning, it starts with a, a broader kind of sensibility, right? It's, it's the context by which you're even allowed to think, explore, to kind of operate in your society, right? And I would have said we're at a time when it's much more closed, and it's much more difficult to even find a quorum, to find some sort of a constituency that's even interesting and, and interested in talking about these problems. And it would go back to the beginning of the conversation, problems that we haven't even started to address and even understanding what is a metropolis. What is it? Right? 
Because I would say it's going to start with parallels in biology, and you could be reading Christian Dadouv, and it's going to have to do with cellular biology, and it's going to have to do with complex multisystems, and on and on, right? But it's going to immediately kind of take us into a, um, I think, an exploration. Because I just said, there's nobody. Right. Um, uh, is, is Bill here? Bill Fain? Bill. Oh. Hi, Bill. <laughs> we talk about all the time, like, how many people can we talk about in the city that are actually interested in having a dialogue? about asking the question, by the way, how do we even start solving the problem? It's not that we have the solutions. We haven't even grasped what the problems are yet, and they're incredibly complicated problems. You're listening to architects Shin-Yun Ma and Tom Main. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. For more information or to hear past programs and lectures, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. We'll return to architects Shinyan Ma and Tom Main in a moment. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. The lives of many African Americans have dramatically improved within the last generation. However, millions have been left behind, undereducated, poor, in prison. Are black civil rights groups still making a difference, or are they stuck in the past? That's our question for the next On the Road Air Talk. It's Thursday night, February 21st at 7 p.m. at the L.A. Central Library's Taper Auditorium. RSVP to kpcc.org. You already know how to get KPCC on your radio and your computer. Now you can get NPR and KPCC News on your cell phone or PDA. Go to kpcc.org to learn about NPR Mobile from KPCC. You can get hourly headlines, news stories, or hear the Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me quiz, all whenever it's convenient for you. NPR and KPCC News on air, online, and now on the phone, too. Contribute today to help kick off our next member drive, and we'll send you a KPCC tote bag as a bonus. Your early bird contribution also gives us a jump start on our overall goal of 9,000 members. Join or renew online today at kpcc.org. And thanks. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, L.A.'s free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. We now return to architects Shinyan Ma and Tom Main. May I continue another question here? Anywhere you want. <laughs> um, you stated that Team 10, or the energy represented by Team 10, engaged in impossible tasks, but... If we think actually carefully, we may discover that actually the courage to engage in impossible tasks indicated a very daring result of their proposal. Team 10's urban proposals have a large notion of willingness to be expired. If you look at because it's mobile, recomposable, and it actually have no form a nature of form at that time attached to this to, to Team 10's approach. It's really walking city, a floating city, and it is basically became a notion, yes. Right. And it's it's really it transforms, it actually expires on its own energy. And only with that kind of daring 
anticipation of result, then you can start to be able to engage in impossible tasks. I think that's the beauty of this, you know, highly courageous utopian ideas. And do you know Peter Cook? He invented cities that are moving and walking. Kind of a crazy idea. They're building them today. Well, they don't quite walk, right? Right, right? But he initiated a whole notion of extreme kind of dynamicism, which we actually see in reality today. And it also the, uh, the, the fundamental strength of that is actually it takes a city not as a built phenomenon. It's, it's the notion of urbanism. Urbanism is not about objects and built matters. It's actually about energy and how to divert and organize, even dissemble energies in, in certain way. So when we talk about energy of the city, then I would also wanted to then kind of shift it to a notion of lifespan and life cycle. Life cycle is a biological life that goes through a laboratory environment where it goes through the whole spectrum of life. But lifespan is something that exists in an external, it's in a context that has external impact. So actually lifespan, unfortunately, in the natural world is shorter than life cycle. So that gives another interesting kind of look on cities. Are city actually being planned for life cycle or actually being designed and built for lifespan? And how actually do we devise or intelligently with the science that hands, with, with the courage that, that in our head, actually could work at that span and not spam, not my, not my firm, but it's S-P-A-N. <laughs> So I think this somehow kind of opens, I think from that we probably enter the realm of L.A., like what is L.A. that's thinking in cycle and span terms? Well, we're talking I mean, about. I'm new to the city. I really, I'm eager as you all, like listen to Well, Tom. so it's usually about L.A. that we were talking before we right. came on stage. This is a city about time. I was asking you, the, the fourth one I haven't figured out yet, but it, there's... Cities operate simultaneously on different time frameworks, and it starts with media time, which is the, the time we live in today, and it's the 20th century time, and it, it goes to biological time, which we're probably most interested in because it has to do with our lifespan. And then it seems to be geologic is the next, and we're quite aware of that because the Earth's moving, and right, we're aware of this, this notion of geology, and it takes a much larger kind of framework. And then after that, I guess it's, it's cosmic or universal, or there's this larger kind of span. And um, cities are always kind of operating within this multiple kind of frameworks. And L.A., of course, is the, is the kind of temporary city. It's the city that changes more rapidly than you can even, you can even um, comprehend. I will, all of you, I'm sure, had the same. You show up to the nursery you've been going to for 20 years, and it just disappeared, and no one told you, and you go, damn, it's, it's just, things just appear and disappear, or you, you don't go to Pasadena for five years. And then you, you, you see a friend there five years later, and you, you can't even recognize it. There's, right, the whole thing has changed so fast. Well, we're, we live in a... I've been working on this for a while in some books, and we live in a country. This is 17.5 million people with over 100 languages, and it's the size of Holland. So Pasadena is Amsterdam, and Long Beach is Rotterdam, and Los Angeles is The Hague, or whatever you want, right? And it's twice the size of Austria. I was just in Austria with a friend of mine, and we, we, got, we always get in arguments in, in, in an academic setting. And I have to remind him, I said, um, Wolf, uh, my city is, is twice the size of your country. He's in Vienna. And your, your Vienna, by the way, is just over a million people. It's just a little village here. All right? It, it is literally Pasadena. Again, it goes back to, we don't really quite grasp yet. This is a very new phenomenon. Of course, in this guy's country, in China, it's, we're talking now another 
Everything you know, ramp it up times ten, right? <laughs> and um, but this is a this is a um, actually last quarter of the twentieth century phenomena, which really we haven't got our arms around yet. Kind of really the meaning of this type of urbanization at this type of scale, and it, it affects us in our daily lives. It affects the fact that I have a hard time even moving to this part of town at this point in my life. That it becomes an hour and a half, and it's no longer accessible. So that living in within this. Um, L.A. from east to west is about 75 miles, it changes the rules of even the definition of city. Because most people think of city as an inside and an outside, a country and an urban, right? This very simple kind of doesn't work anymore. The inside's outside and the outside is inside, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so, it's, it's again, it goes back to these incredibly kind of... Um, hmm. An inability even to define the nature of the terms that we're talking right. about at this point. Isn't, but, but it sounds like the intelligence, or if it's... It, of L.A. or L.A. intelligence, if we could phrase that, relies on or based on the, the notion of expiration. I'm sorry, sorry to use that word. This word is a bit too uh, radical. But a kind of a, a transforming ability. You used the temporality, but temporality is really it's, it's changing forms and changing functions, even changing uh, compositions. Because I've seen some photos from, I couldn't even name a, pos- a position like Green and some old uh, monuments. And when I look at uh, photos taking 30s and then 50s and uh, outside the window, things changed. Every It's completely changed. And I was told somewhere south uh, of the city, and it's changed three rounds and four rounds of architecture. However, and that really is something that, it, for me, a newcomer to L.A., is very encouraging and extremely exciting. And kind of finally go to a city, actually things change. And things are built in such a way that it always look like it could be replaced by better buildings. So it's always that, it's always that kind of a, a hope that things can be replaced. And even it's not a criminal to even wishing that to be placed, right? Because it's really... So that kind of quality is very hard, actually, if you go to you know, New York, Shanghai, uh, and Milan, and Paris, there's just completely kind of this preserved, there are preservatives in the city, right. rather than a kind of an organic, expiring kind of process. But, but L.A. has that kind of expiring, encouraging kind of uh, huh. energy there. But if it is essence of this the kind of intelligence, L.A. intelligence, have we actually really, really looked at them and starts to implement it into a planning process where planning is not planned for the longest lifespan ever and hope that it reaches the natural or biological life cycle, rather than intelligently planned its life cycle. So that the, the beautiful thing about life cycle and lifespan, that, that offset is actually the the possibility, the space of change, the space for future, and that, that kind of offset is a hope for the future. And somehow if planning is a process not only planned for permanence, but actually planned for expiration, maybe we can actually all of a sudden revolutionize the technology and even the kind of the way we teach. It's we interesting. Te- you, knew you asked me a question earlier. It was really hard to get my head around it because I'm so... Uh, I imagine a lot of you would be the same way. I'm, I'm implicitly connected to um, cities as accretional. They grow and they build. And I've never really never thought about expiration as you, as you talk about it. But it, and of course, they're like biological systems. 
there's um, cells in our body that re- reproduce themselves every three hours, the certain bacteria in your stomach, mm-hmm. et cetera. And it's, right. it's, a, it's only a, a natural, natural process. And of course, LA is so maybe so second nature because we, we build temporarily, really. A, a, a type five, a, a stick building is a temporary building. So we understand that. And we're at a point now where we've, we've seen first growth. The city is more or less full. And that first growth mm-hmm. are these temporary buildings, right? That'll now be replaced by something more permanent. Etc. But this gets even more interesting if you... See, I think a lot of things about urban design different than architecture. Architecture, you, you make something coherent. And it, 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 there's no question. It's a, you argue about the coherency and the nature of what's coherent and what makes what has some sort of a logic. And I think in, in urban planning, you're dealing with a much more complicated, intricate problem that has dimensions economically, politically, socially, ecologically, etc. That it's not you're planning something, you're understanding it. And you're putting it within terms that you can understand the nature of the, of the conversation, but you can't always control it. You have to just move with it, right? You have to somehow find a, a place mm-hmm. to, un, to relate to it. This notion of exploration would be actually really useful in maybe some other places like a, a Detroit. I remember once we were having a conversation with a Detroit, group of students, yeah, and we had this idea, of, you know, why don't you just make a donut, kind of just take the whole inside city, scrape it off, and put cornfields in it, and make a reverse city, where the middle would be the cornfields and the edges where the life is, stays that way. And it was touching on this idea, which is, um, seems to be impossible for most people to even comprehend. But in many cases, this has to do with the radicalness, hmm, the degree of change that's taken place that's exponential in the 20th century that continues in the 21st century, which requires radically different thinking of, of how we live collectively. But it's actually not radical. It's, it's not radical at all. You mentioned cornfield. I wanted to kind of stop, slow down on this cornfield issue. That's actually agriculture. Expiration is actually a very agricultural notion, which has stayed with us for thousands, thousands years. Agriculture, the beauty of agriculture and the intelligence of agriculture is in this expiration. Think about it. Agriculture, the hope of agriculture, with a peasant's talk, like, uh, in my hometown, it's actually a farmland, and it's very famous saying, like, uh, no matter how screwed up you are to this year, you can get better next year. No matter how well you do this year, you can be screwed up next year. So the hope is always next year. So it's not the year before. So it's always next year. And the essence of agriculture is the hope to the future that in replacement of today... But you could have been born in L.A. That's yeah, so the definition that's, that's, of the city. You always live in the, for the next... L.A. is so always in search of its future, right? I mean, that's the, that, that would be the absolute the essence of the But there is a kind of a willingness to get this year to be replaced. Then, you, know, you, you cut the corn, you burn the sticks, and you, you wait for the next year. I want to shift a little bit to um, kind of observ- observation of Tom's recent rigor in urban thinking. Because uh, when I was a student... Tom, the SciArc and uh, the LA School of Thinking came out uh, to be really dominant in our class uh, classroom. Back then, uh, we were all thinking that this architectural uh, paradigm has a lot to do with with the kind of control over objects and absolute control over objects, even to a point that those objects became random. You see what I mean? Only you can insert absolute control. You can allow randomness happening. Does that have an urban notion? And, and it, it, in architectural uh, Rome, the LA school is never really about cities to start with. That's maybe the misunderstanding, but it's really the kind of a perception. But recently, uh, you have led students in your offices engage in 
very rigorous urban thinking in, in Europe, in China, and some parts uh, in Korea. What is that kind of early control over randomness or lack of control over precision? And either way you can take it, has implication of the late kind of urban agenda in the work. That's funny because I was anticipating discussing this, and, and I said earlier that, that in an architectural problem, you exert control, and you're somehow honored for that. Because what you're looking at is a singularity, like in a film, right? You're the auteur, and you, you take a large group of people and you focus them to a, a result. And you look at Disney all across the street, wherever you want to look at, right? And in urban design, it's a very, very different kind of notion. I wrote down this notion of you connect dynamic relationships of emerging complex systems. These are Rand Bechtel problems. These aren't singular architects' problems of visions of the world. And so I'm recognizing, and I'm talking to various people in my profession, that there seems to be a complete void of being able to both understand and solve the problem. And some of them are really, um, you could put it in very straightforward terms. We as a culture have just spent close to a trillion dollars to turn a uh, culture of, uh, of, of three basic tribes into a Shiite culture. We've expended numbers of, of personal lives and, and et cetera, et cetera, and we spent a trillion dollars. It's $8 billion to put a subway that goes from downtown to Santa Monica. You have to think of those terms, right? What does that subway do? The subway is a connective tissue. It, it's infrastructure. At some point, we need people that can educate and articulate problems to the political class. Our mayor needs to understand this. Why do we do this? To stay economically competitive? to produce uh, cities that we value in cultural and social terms that expand the huge diversity of a city such as L.A., an amazing, amazing place, the city. It's, it's the accomplishment of, of humankind as they come together within 15, 17 million people and the accumulation of this vast, vast, just about infinite knowledge, complexity, diversity, et cetera, et cetera, right? And it has to be accessible to be able to be used, right? And that accessibility comes through infrastructure of various types. We need an ability to understand and to solve these problems and to put them within broad terms that the public can understand, that they understand that this is necessary, that it requires a certain type of thinking that has to level a certain type of complexity with people that you can put together that understand these problems like you would in any type of problem in medicine, in biology, name your, name your field that you're interested in, in computation, et cetera, et cetera. And it doesn't seem to exist right now. And it seems as though it's just an early, we're at, again, this early stage of shifting from these very kind of knowable things that we call towns, right, to something much, much more complicated. And it's also, of course, become global because today nobody living in this city, or it would be rare to live in this city without being aware of our position in global terms. Again, socially, culturally, economically, politically, it'd be impossible to survive because we only survive within a global culture, especially this country that survives on um, intellectual and creative capital. We're a, a country of services, right? It's something that, that, that uh, I'm just taking a, a wild, kind of a very intuitive kind of set of hunches of trying to get people um, interested. Uh, Richard Kashalik got me started on the first study, and the idea was not to really solve problems it was to start investigating problems that would get people interested in the problem itself, to get other people interested that have more resources and, and the potential, and to stimulate the political characters, the people that have decision-making processes, to understand the necessity of this. Because again, if you start talking about that subway today, and we agree we're going to build it, it's a decade from now before you use it. Right? This isn't architecture again. You want a house and you want it now. 
right? And you get it in a year and a half, and that's already forever for you, right? Because you're used to walking in and just buying something. These are long, long-term problems which will become important to you, if not your children and your children's children, that we have to understand we're not yet, they're not on the agenda, and they have to be, because they're extremely important. You're listening to architects Shinyun Ma and Tom Main. This is Sokalo Radio, the on-air home of the Sokalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. For information or to listen to past broadcasts, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We'll be back in a moment. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. Know that breathing anywhere. The ability to destroy a planet is insignificant next to the power of the force. One of the most memorable villains in movies, with a backstory that took three entire prequels to tell. I'm Renee Montaigne, behind Darth Vader's mask. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Weekday mornings on 89.3 KPCC. Looking for some ideas on things to do, where to go, and what to see? Sign up for KPCC's monthly arts and culture newsletter. Delivered to your inbox every month, it contains information on the Southland's cultural happenings. Visit kpcc.org and click on the newsletter's link to sign up. Every day on All Things Considered, we bring you novel ideas and remarkable stories. This is really a new development. Oh my God, I will never forget that. You can't teach that kind of stuff, you just have it. We can shock them a little too. Something new, something unexpected, maybe even unforgettable on All Things Considered from NPR News. Weekday afternoon starting at 3.30 on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. We now return to architects Shinyan Ma and Tom Main. This is an amazing, L.A. is a lab. This is a laboratory. We went on default. And that's why it's so interesting. But it might get less interesting at some point. And it seems to me we're maybe getting close to some sort of a threshold where this notion of this experiment, because this is the city everybody looks at. This is the 20th century city. And it's funny, I'm always criticized because the Europeans, you, you can imagine, they go after you. And I, I finally learned <laughs> to say, you know, it's not really a city you like or dislike, it just is. Does it make any sense? Because I, I like it and I don't like it for any number of, it's a complex place. It just is. And if you just accept it for, it's just this, it, it's propelled on its own and multiple forces. No, none of us chose to make the city like this, right? It's an incredibly complicated set of organisms that are operating that made, that made this place it is. But at some point, it's not going to operate in that kind of laissez-faire sense. If you've been to um, Bangkok, there's other cities that you can look at that are parallel to this. It's fascinating. You'll find two uh, 40-story buildings that are a meter apart. And it's just laissez-faire. Well, at some point, it gets destructive. Or if you try to move five blocks in that same city, you finally just get out and walk because it's literally, it's, it's a standstill and on and on. And you can already, if you're interested in urbanism, you can look at any number of situations. Shanghai, I, I'm working in Shanghai right now. It's fascinating. It's, it's, um, if you want, if you really believe in anarchism, if you believe in small government, if you, believe, if you take that argument, it's, it's fabulous. I always wanted to, I remember in the Regan days, 
the joke in the office was, let's get Regan to Bangkok, to Shanghai. Let's, let's send him to some of these places that he so much admires and just it, it, make an evaluation. You take away all kind of rules, let it happen in the most kind of haphazard way. And there's an excitement about it. There's no question. They're fascinating places, right? But they're maybe more interesting artistically or in some personal ways than they actually are functioning. Big difference of visiting some place and finding it just immensely stimulating. And L.A. has a lot of that because this is a definitely an exciting kind of city. And a lot of it is because of its, um, the laissez-fairness, the fact that it doesn't have a lot of predictable situations. Does that right? have to do... But still, there's going to be some sort of a demand of some middle ground or some transformation having to do with certain types of forces that demands that we global solve forces. forces. Glo- global you, you mentioned global. That we can I, just I, move from A to B, or that we, in fact, still have the accessibility. In the last 10 years, I've lived here since it was said, since I was, a, since I was 10 years old, I operate in this city at the last, especially five years, in a completely different way. I now live on the west side, and UCLA is my, my kind of energy and blithe. You and I, we, to, to come to a show here, to come here tonight... Uh, to go to a lecture at CyArk, which is, which is my home, my past home, I've learned I go at 3.30 in the afternoon is the envelope. I go to the uh, Metropolis or Metropole or something cafe. They know me now. Take a pile of work. Wait till just before 7 o'clock. Walk over and, and look at the lecture at CyArk. Otherwise, I can't see it. And I have to go there because I have a friend speaking or I'm introducing somebody. right? And, and what, what that means, it's incredibly simple, that this incredible diversity is less and less accessible. Right? And then we live in New York... Well, I can walk three blocks, and I have 200 restaurants and a bakery, and on and on and on, right? And then you start evaluating. Are these, hmm, on value terms, what do I admire? What kind of city do I want to make for, right, that, that has human characteristics? And what terms does it operate under? And that's, it starts the conversation, all right? And it's things that, I don't know, isn't it kind of weird that there isn't, you think there'd be a kind of continual dialogue that you'd be reading in the, in the paper, et cetera, because these are such kind of incredibly kind of interesting problems. We have this kind of amazing place in, in natural terms, right? We were, we were given a kind of a, a, fa- a fascinating kind of place to start with, right, with huge, huge assets. So we can, we can ski an hour and a half away if you leave at 2 in the morning, and you can go to the beach, and you can go to the desert again if you go at 3 in the morning, get there in an hour and 15 minutes. I can get here in, in 13 minutes from Ocean Park at 6th Street, right, if I leave on Saturday at 7 in the morning. Right, that's what it takes. Right? And well, th- it was only a half a decade ago that things were more accessible here, even the complaints of the freeways, et cetera. Right? And the discussion is, is, that, is that we're looking at a system or systems and we're evaluating where they expire or where they now become obsolete and they're no longer operational. It seems as though at the 17 and a half, heading for 20, heading for 25 or whatever, and we're reaching also our boundary ecologically because finally you just can't community further, and it's also getting expensive. That's a whole other discussion. It would be a whole other, the whole ecological discussion of how do you even develop, how do you develop ecologically so we can share the energy in a way that we can even survive, again, politically as well as in, in, in ecological terms. Speaking of that, Wired Magazine, four or five months ago, had this, this notion. They said, if you want to be green, forget all the complicated discussions, move to Manhattan. And it just threw me. Isn't that a weird? I'm like, what are you talking about? And it was fascinating. No car. Public transportation, you live in a compact building where you only got one face against the three of them. The top and the bottom are neighbors. The three sides are neighbors. You, get, you share the heat, right? <laughs> one wall, you heat and cool, right? You walk to the bakery, you walk to the restaurant, you walk to work maybe, right? 
And it's fascinating. It just completely, it never would have, isn't that kind of an odd counterintuitive? I go, no, 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 it's got to be the most inefficient place in the world. And anyway, it, 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 we continually have to start asking ourselves, what does it really mean to live in cities and, and on, on multiple terms? It seems to be a discourse that needs to be vital, that's stimulating, that we're involved in. So do you mean that the isolation, or if maybe this, the increasing isolation in L.A. in terms of areas and directions have diminished or tends to diminish the diversity that the city have been offering? A person like Dedue, the Nobel cellular biologist, he discusses the beginning of civilization, the beginning of the humanoid, is through um, the mouth. There's been several great articles in the, the science section of the New York Times. This is fabulous. There was a, what was it, Blythe recently, right? There was a discussion of communication, very rote, very, very simple communication. It was the beginning of social behavior. And, and again, I mean, the, the basis of all society is in communication, in the relationship of singularity to, to, group, to groups, right? And cities represent the most sophisticated, today anyway, the most sophisticated manifestation of that process is where a huge, huge number of us can somehow get along, and we've, we've broken down at least some of the tribal barriers, not always, that's still there. And then this city, of course, again, is this incredible experiment, the multiplicity of cultures, the total lack of uh, a singularity of, of where we come from, or even an interest in it. Not too many people here are really interested in kind of defending their... I don't think we define ourselves by kind of where we come from, because most of us come from kind of multiple places, or we don't even know. Right, and it's this amazing, amazing place, and it makes it a—it's um, an incredible, it's a enormous petri dish. It makes it a fascinating place to kind of ask and talk about these problems. So I think it's a place where there's actually quite a bit of, even if in the laissez fairness, there's a quite, a, I think, in some strange way, a kind of an interest in the nature of the city. Am I wrong? It's a city that most people have some connection to. It's not—it's not a place you love. I don't think is it. It's not like San Francisco or Boston or New York, <laughs> is it? <laughs> wrong? It's funny. I've always been kind of neutral, but it's a hard city to kind of love. Because it's not a place. It's places. I think which we'll part love the of city it? more. It'd be which part, which part, which city or which community? I think we'll love the city more if we all have drivers. <laughs> I think that's an urbanism. That's an urbanism. I think as L.A. became more global it's, uh, and culturally diverse, I think L.A. in this time is culturally diverse but not global. Sorry for that. It's actually relocalized. I mean, think about it. I know many people from China, from Southeast Asia, once they purchase a house there, they will never move around. They will just stay there and have a lot of uh, different animals. But I I also want to throw a little bit of new knowledge that I just learned uh, recently. <laughs> I actually, some recently from dis- cross-disciplinary initiatives in USC, a school of architecture has kind of go to the gerontology and post uh, what is post uh, occupational therapy. I learned this notion of life planning for the first time. Simply, uh, we have a we have a department doing it. Simply, the philosophy is: in the old days, you work your body, exhaust your body to a point up to forty, and then or even fifty, and then you start to realize actually your body does something weird to you, and then you start to do medication. And hopefully all the medication and after 50 and give you a good elongated life. But that's wrong. Now it's wrong. It's not fashionable that way anymore. You should plan your life when you're 30 and actually start to invest in diff- small amount of investment, accumulate a very healthy and long life, which is almost like a stock investment, right? 
You just have to have a portfolio of what you invested, and you have a portfolio of medical strategies in your lifespan, knowing your life does have a span. It's not permanent. Therefore, you start to plan a whole life. But this is very difficult for human being. It's really difficult to imagine. Actually, life is a passage. Is a passage. So you kind of constantly refuse, saying like, "Okay, my life is going to last forever." Okay, my life. This is. I'm healthy. I'm feeling good. Every morning, you open your eyes and you say, "I'm going to live forever." But actually, it's not. So you need to really plan it. That gave me a lot of thinking about this urban planning. You actually should plan it for a passage, not for permanence. This is where I thought architectural education could take a new turn. Actually, we don't teach students to build buildings that last forever, ever, 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 but actually build buildings intelligently with a good performance and offering the good good behavior to society and biological well-being of the occupants. For、uh, only a period of time, is it possible? I don't know. Political, socially speaking, it's almost impossible in the states. I don't think. But maybe it's where education could take on to kind of slowly erode this permanence-based culture and start to really invest in intelligence of passage. It's starting to happen already. New materials, new science. You know, it, uh, complicated buildings now are being looked at more and more like an automobile. You don't expect the tire, the engine, right? All, they all have their own lifespan, and we're now looking at technology of materials where you put a, a skin on the building. It can, be, it can be rubber or it can be some high-tech material, and has a lifespan of ten years. That's totally fine. Replacing ten that's, years. That's great. More and more. So, for, there's no question. Exactly. That's, that's kind a trajectory. Of architectural, architectural, I mean, architectural technology or a technology involving buildings are so antiquated, and the material we use are so antiquated. We're still using stones. Stones we we we, we exhausted France, and then we go to Italy. We then exhaust Italy. We go to China. Then we exhaust China. Oh, we don't even get started on that. We're、one. still I mean, we're still carving the stuff、yeah. that's well, been used thousand years ago. It is fun to imagine our buildings is like this synthetic material. You blow it into a bubble. If you don't like, you suck it in. You blow it into another shape. You never generate waste. That's where the key is. Because we generate waste when we think about terms, and then we never really. I think building science need USA building science have to take on but, this. Yeah,、bubbles. but now you're again before we open this up to whatever we're opening it up to. <laughs> we're we're also in a period of time where the, the majority of people, maybe even some of you. Prefer to live in fake French provincial, or Tudor, Spanish or、mission. fake phony, second-rate Spanish, and it's like, damn! I mean, this is the 21st century. Did, did you realize that modern architecture started 100 years ago? I mean, what's the point? What are you trying? It's a symbol. What are you symbolizing? That, were, that somehow the, the 19th century was interesting, or the 18th, or the 17th, or whatever the fuck you think it is? Oh, I, it's a radio. <laughs> Am I going to lose my job on public radio? <laughs> Who was the last person who lost it? Was your your pal, a singer, singer, right? Oh dear, take it out. The、um, no, we, so this discussion he's having, there isn't a lot of kind of interest in like forward progress here. There's a huge kind of notion that we're somehow comfortable in living in this kind of fake old new world that that somehow has something to do with some idea of status, and what it has to do with is you're dead already. You literally died. If your brain isn't operating, if you aren't living in today, if you haven't got problems, why wake up? Take the medicine you're talking about and shorten the bloody life. I mean, really? It's just, or take a vacation, so get a boat and just do something else. But it's、um, we live in. It's really, really a bizarre time in that sense. 
You, from architects, if you talked across the board, there would be no, dis, there'd be no discussion. It doesn't matter what, what kind of camp you're in, or et cetera. The discussion is, um, why aren't more people interested in the present and in exploring what it means to be alive in the 21st century and how that affects living and how your environment is an extension of your creative potential and of your creative intellectual capital that stimulates it and works with it and that you're radically involved in that process with your professionals that are helping you manifest that idea. And what's so interesting about living in some dead architecture, it didn't die for no reason. (laughs) (laughs) And and then it's like on top of it, it's a copy of a bad fake. I mean, it's just layers of stuff. It's just, it's, it's the, hard the, to even the, proceed. The reason that you haven't really moved on from it is because the fear of the waste that's been generated. I have very strong feeling in this because I'm now building, a, not even building, a renovate an old house. I feel so bad if I strip the wood and throw it away. So I'm like sandblast everything, and I, I paid so much to... Then and I think about my iPod. I change my cell phone two twice a year. So I change a black iPod, white iPod. I have so many, but I can't change my house. There's such a gravitational waste there. The key is, I mean, it's the material. The building signs really support us to build lightly, enjoy it lightly. When we load it again, we don't generate waste. I think it's really way behind. The architectural technology and education is way behind. Tom, I, I don't even dare to, to speak in the way that he did, but that's exactly... Okay, because I'm new to the city. I'm still kind of gaining my ground here, but... but that's, You're Chinese. You can't, you can't do that. Well, yes, that Chineseness. You know, <laughs> Just, that's, that's another notion. Like, China, everybody thinks China has this long tradition of thousand years of, like, heritage and whatever. No, we, we, re, we, we let things expire, the city of Beijing, which look now so beautiful, we criticize the city, demolished the hutongs. It has been demolished eight times before we even realized Beijing is beautiful. <laughs> Why now preserve it? What about the eight times happening start from Tang Dynasty? The reason is because the wood are constantly being reused. The whole city used the same amount. It's just shuffles between building to building. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> No, really. I mean, kind of walls are collapsed, and the, the, the mud walls melted under the ground, and rain goes to return back to the blood. And then the wood is just forbidden city. Same amount of wood used in different buildings all the time. It de- demolished one garden, one palace, and it's always forbidden city. So I think that kind of temporality is a science, ethics, and in the end, the principle of education, where that's where I am kind of now on. <laughs> You've been listening to architects Shin Yun Ma and Tom Main. This is Sokalo Radio, the on-air home of the Sokalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Sokalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. Catch us again next Sunday, or we'll see you at one of our free live events around town. For more information, go to SokoloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. The executive producer for Sokolo Radio is Peter Stenshold. Douglas Gary is our engineer. Thank you for tuning in.
The battle between internationalists and isolationists in America's history is a long one and continues through this current presidential season. On the next edition of Air Talk, we'll speak with scholar Strobe Talbot, former Deputy Secretary of State and author of The Great Experiment. We'll talk about how closely allied America should be with other countries. It's Air Talk, Monday morning at 10 on 89.3 KPCC. Do you have an old car, truck, or boat taking up space in your garage? Give it to KPCC.